Well, we're in Psalm 129 this morning. Psalm 129. It's not an easy psalm. And so I stumbled again this week on an old blog post by John Piper suggesting what to do when a psalm is not describing your particular situation. He wrote, A couple of mornings ago, I read Psalm 142. It says, There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. I am brought very low. Then Piper writes, I do not share this lament at this time. There are many who care for my soul. I'm not presently very low. I've known times more like that, but it is not true of me now. So what should we do when we read psalms that do not represent our present experience? He suggests four things. We should realize that somewhere in the world there are Christians who are right now in that situation. Pray with them and for them. Number two, realize that you will be in this situation sooner or later. And build this pattern of prayer into your life now as preparation. Number three, get to know God by the way the godly go to him and what they say to him in such times. And number four, give thanks for the relative peace and joy you have in this fragile season. Well, I think that's very good advice. It answers a question I have asked myself many times when reading various psalms. I'm sure you have as well. I wouldn't take away or minimize anything that Piper teaches us in these four suggestions. I would only add another, a fifth. Be suspicious that a psalm may be more true of you than you at first think. Maybe be more suspicious that a psalm is more true of you than you think. This morning, I think it'll be good for us to take Piper's advice and perhaps my meager addition as well. As we turn to Psalm 129, it's a song of ascents. And it says this, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Like many of these Psalms of Ascents, Psalm 129 would have us ponder and praise and pray. As I said a few weeks ago, these Psalms are often like a combination lock on a briefcase. The combination may change week to week, but roughly we have the same numbers and dials at work. And some of these psalms we've been studying together in the recent weeks have, have been happy and exultant ones, and others have been heavier and honestly painful. Of course, Psalm 129 is the latter. Last week was a joy. The week before, Psalm 127, these idyllic psalms of the household are wonderful and sweet. They bring a happy tear to your eye. Psalm 129 is different, but it is needed and important, still the same. The psalm teaches us first to ponder the great distress of God's people. Verses 1 to 3, ponder the great distress of God's people. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. They've not prevailed against me. 
But greatly have they afflicted me from my youth such that the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. If this psalm will have any relevance for us, we must start by joining with God's people of millennia past to ponder the great distress that is typical of God's people. That imagery of plowers plowing upon my back and making long their furrows is, well, it's disgusting. That's what it is. It's symbolic. It's not literal. But it's symbolic of real pain, actual, physical, painful persecution. The symbolism in Scripture is never meant to make something untrue, but to actually communicate or capture the truth. That's what we have here. So you're getting the picture of verse 3? It's a human being laid down upon the ground, and the enemy is plowing over the back, and the blades of the plow over that back are deep and going long in making these furrows, these bloody scars. It's cruel torture. It's purposefully painful and even shameful. While plowing a human back isn't exactly a thing, thankfully, whipping is, and it leaves similar marks. Slavery and whipping, for some reason, seem to go hand in hand. I think we're supposed to think of Israel's slavery in Egypt as we begin this psalm. Psalm 129 says, they afflicted me from my youth. And as the book of Exodus opens, yes, Israel is great in number, but they are just a youth as a nation. It's the beginning of what God will do with them. We read in Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. That's what Psalm 129 is talking about. So let's just turn back to Exodus in our Bibles. Let's review for ourselves again something of the suffering that Israel faced in those years in Egypt. Look at Exodus chapter 1 in verse 10. We'll just sort of skim some of these verses to remind ourselves of the language. Come, they say, let us deal with shrewdly or literally ruthlessly with them, these people, the Israelites. Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And of course, later in the chapter is Pharaoh's decree that the firstborn males of the Israelites would be killed. Verse 22, and Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Greatly were they afflicted. We need not read on in chapter 5 when Pharaoh gets the idea to have them make their bricks without straw. They have to go get the straw for themselves, but they're still required to make as many bricks as they did before. And throughout these chapters in Exodus, there's this emphasis on the cruelty of it, the bondage of it, the slavery, the physical toil, and the pain. It keeps being talked about being laid upon their backs. And that's what our psalm has primarily in view. Let Israel now say, let Israel keep saying and keep remembering Greatly have they caused us anguish and distress. Remember that the Psalms of Ascents were packaged together later on, long after the Exodus, 
to be sung by Jewish pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem three times a year for these prescribed feasts that God had for his people. And two of the three feasts had something to do with Egypt or the Exodus. Passover, of course, celebrated that night when God brought that final plague upon Pharaoh and his land and passed over the homes that had that sign of faith upon the doorposts. Another feast, the Feasts of Booths or Tabernacles, celebrated God's present provision by looking back in remembrance to that generation in the wilderness where God provided for them miraculously. Isn't it curious? God's people, centuries and centuries after Exodus, for millennia after leaving Egypt, they were still looking back and reviewing, even rehearsing the pain. As one scholar put it, whereas most nations tend to look back on what they've achieved, Israel reflects here on what she survived. Only one generation lived through and experienced Egypt and the Exodus but all their offspring to follow were to rehearse it and rehearse it as their own story. Notice how it's personal and corporate in Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me. Let Israel now say, as a whole, they can say, greatly have they afflicted me. Why? Why can they say that in first person and together as a nation? Well, because... They're not just identifying with the past. They're also needing to make sense of the present. And Israel's story is laced all the way through with suffering and persecution, opposition and threat. So it's not just Egypt. We should think again of Philistines and Moabites and Edomites and the Mosquito Bites and all the ites. <laughs> Greatly have they afflicted me. Literally, it could be Greatly or many have been my afflictions. We can also think of key people at key moments in Israel's history who could sing these words with special significance, like King David. Of course, he could uniquely and especially say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Or as he elsewhere wrote, Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. From his brothers to Saul, to Saul's whole army, and the Philistines later, his son Absalom, Ahithophel, the traitor. How many are my foes? King David was not so opposed and rejected because he had a, a string of bad luck, or was just an annoying guy. People didn't like King David because he was the Lord's anointed. When men hate the Lord God, then they'll look at times to take it out on his people or even his man in the case of David. David explained all this to us in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together, against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs at it all. All they're conspiring and counseling together. God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord says to his anointed, you are my son, today I've begotten you. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. But there was actually another son of Israel and also a son of David who was afflicted more greatly than any other son of Israel or son of David. Of course, that's Jesus. It's no coincidence or mistake that Matthew's gospel account refers and quotes back to Hosea 11.1. 1, Out of Egypt I've called my son. When Jesus' parents had to flee to Egypt to escape Herod's desperate attempt to destroy the new baby king. 
In this, Jesus was replaying and reliving the same old story, but now in its final and fullest form. Jesus can say, more than any other, greatly did they afflict me from my youth. He was dismissed by his brothers, mocked by his neighbors, hated and opposed by the religious leaders. They conspired against him from the very beginning of his ministry, plotting, conspiring, planning, maneuvering until they got him. His own rulers took counsel together with the kings of this world against the Lord and against his anointed. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that this would happen 700 years before Jesus was born. He spoke of this suffering servant who would come. Listen, Isaiah 50, verse 6. Does this remind you of our psalm? The suffering servant says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 52, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And of course, chapter 53, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, he was stricken, he was smitten, he was afflicted, he was pierced, he was crushed. But it is by his wounds or his stripes that were healed. Greatly did they afflict him. How many were his afflictions? Well, what's true for Jesus is also true for his followers. That's what Jesus said even before the cross. He said to his followers, they hated me, they will hate you also. He said, parents, and brothers and sisters will turn you in and give you over to the authorities for you to be killed. You'll be hated for my namesake. Oh, how those first disciples could say and sing, how greatly they have afflicted us. The book of Acts opens with preaching and conversion and thousands joining in and following Jesus, but how quickly it leads to persecution and severe opposition. By chapter 4, you have beatings, imprisonment, threats. You have more arrests and more threats in chapters 5 and 6. And by chapter 7, we have our first Christian martyr, Stephen, who stoned to death for preaching this message of Christ. That persecution there in Jerusalem becomes so certain and so severe that the church must disperse in all directions. That's what God uses for the spread of the gospel. And so the rest of the book of Acts is one story after another of God's people traveling somewhere, preaching there, some loving it, some hating it, them being forced to leave. Traveling, preaching, being beaten, imprisoned. The whole last one-fourth of the book of Acts is Paul in prison under trial. Persecution's a big part of the church's life. I mean, just think of what New Testament document there is, what epistle or gospel account or, or, or letter that's written not for persecuted Christians or not written by a persecuted Christian. Christianity was born out of persecution. It was born into persecution. Greatly have they afflicted the church from its youth. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. James was stoned to death like Stephen. And Thomas was tortured, speared through, and then burned. That's just a few of the stories, a few of the first stories of people dying for Jesus. My copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs has another 300 pages to go. 
after these people I've referred to already. That's our heritage. It's our family tree. It's our story. It's our people. That's what happens to God's people when they go God's ways. Greatly have they afflicted us from our youth. If you say, Ryan, chill out. That's a long time ago, right? That, that's, that's in a barbaric age, and, and people aren't killed anymore over religion. Well, you must not know that 2015, last year, was the most Christian persecuted year in modern history. It's estimated that 7,100 Christians were killed in 2015 for their faith. And I know statistics like that can be squishy because we don't know who is really a Christian and who just says they're a Christian. There are people who say that they're Christians and they essentially hold to a different gospel and so we wouldn't call them a true martyr. But of those 7,100 so-called Christians killed last year, it's 3,100 more than the year before. So whatever the number of true martyrs is in 2015, it is not a few, and it is not waning. We can get some reports of this kind of stuff accidentally as it comes across our screen. Those mass executions, especially the ones that get videoed and the ones that are done by the more famous terrorist groups, that'll hit CNN. But you'll have to go out of your way to get a better look at what's actually happening and how frequent it is. Let me encourage you to write down the web addresses for two organizations that give updates, stories, statistics, and prayer requests for the Christian persecuted church around the world. One is just called persecution.com. The organization is Voice of the Martyrs. Persecution.com. Or you can check out opendoorsusa.org. OpenDoorsUSA.org, both of those give up-to-date stories, information, and stats about what's going on around the world. And, and we need to know what's going on around the world because we need to pray for our brothers and sisters who are going through suffering that's harder than what we face. Remember Piper's advice about psalms that don't seem to be relevant for you? Thank God for the relative peace that you find yourself in in this fragile situation or fragile uh, season. Realize that you could be in a similar situation soon. Learn to pray like them. And of course, pray for them. And my advice is also for us to suspect that Psalm 129 is more true of us now, even, in this country than we realize. Because it is our story. These are our people. We identify with them consciously so, because Hebrews tells us to. Hebrews 13 says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. We should also not think that only deadly persecution can be classified as persecution. We don't want to minimize deadly threats and how difficult that would be. We don't want to say every Christian faces the same kind or amount or degree of persecution or temptation in that persecution. No. On the other hand, though, we don't want to dismiss or recategorize whatever and whenever a Christian is mocked or disowned or cajoled or wrongly fired. This is as old as Satan and the offspring of the woman, the seed and the serpent are still at it from one angle. So blessed are you when you're reviled for my namesake, just reviled even, made fun of, mocked. Peter writes that the world around you can be surprised when you no longer go along with them in debauchery, in partying, in sinning, and in sex. And they revile you, and they malign you. And that happens 
in high schools and colleges all over this country. When that happens to you, teenager, college student, remember there's, a, there's an old song about all this. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they've not prevailed against me. So number two, praise God for his righteous deliverance. It's referenced in verse 2 and made explicit in verse 4. They've not prevailed against me, verse 2. Verse 4, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Go back with me to Old Testament Israel. Despite the plowed backs of persistent and prolonged persecution, remember that the enemy never prevailed. He cut the cords. That is the cords that led from the mule or oxen to pull the plow upon their backs. God showed up out of nowhere, decisively cut their cords, rendering their plow still and useless. Yes, we know in Israel's history, another enemy was just right around the corner. And then another, and then another. Many were their foes. But time and time again, God rescued them. Why? Why did the enemy not prevail? Why did God cut the cords of the wicked? The Lord is righteous, verse 4. He's righteous. When we hear righteousness here in this context anyway, don't just think he's holy or that he does what's right. It also means that he keeps his word. He's faithful to his covenant. They didn't prevail because he said they wouldn't. Remember the futility that is built into Psalm 2. And though the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, he who sits in the heaven laughs at it. He will set his king in Zion despite all their opposition and conspiring and warring. He did promise to his son, David, and then later Jesus. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So what's true of Israel, the nation, is even more true of its greatest son, Jesus. What's true of King David is even more true of David's greater son, Jesus. Psalm 2, written by David, was not just for David or about David or even his first or or second or, or third offspring, Psalm 2 is the second most quoted or referred to psalm in the New Testament. And in each case, the writers apply it to Jesus. He is the king set on Zion. God promised to him the nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession. Think again of the suffering servant of Isaiah And remember that built into those chapters are bits we didn't read the first time through. Bits about vindication and success and victory. It's not just pain and affliction and death. So here again, Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. In chapter 52, yes, his appearance was so marred beyond beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations or cleanse or, or cover them. It's in the dark, heavy crucifixion chapter of 53. Yes, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yeah, he was pierced, but pierced for our transgression. Yeah, he was crushed, but crushed for our iniquities. Yeah, he was chastised, but upon him was our peace. And it's with his stripes that were healed. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He cut the cords of the wicked, not just the cords of the Babylonians, not the cords of the Romans, though many people in the gospel account sure thought that's what he came to do, to cut the cords of the Romans. But he had come to cut the cords of wickedness itself. He has cut off guilt from his people. He has gone to the very root of the problem. Not Babylonians or Egyptians or Romans or Isis. But to sin itself and to its origin, Satan. Christian, what beautiful imagery the psalm gives us about our sin. He's cut the cords of painful bondage to sin and all of the hard consequences that come with that sin. Oh, how deep and painful are the furrows of sin in your life and mine. And he just cut the cords. We weren't even the victim of these furrows plowed upon our backs. If we can mix metaphors, we were also driving the cart. We were fully responsible, and he forgave us that. He forgives us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that was against us, nailing it to the tree. Oh, how deep and painful is that enemy of death. But Hebrews tells us that it's through his death that he destroyed the one who had the power over death. That's the devil so that he can deliver anyone who comes to him from that lifelong slavery to a fear of death. Do you know the Savior? Do you believe in the suffering servant? Do you believe that what Jesus of Nazareth did upon that cross was not just give us some sort of model to follow or a moral lesson to learn, but he was actually paying for sin. Something between heaven and earth was happening there upon that cross. He was bearing the Father's wrath so that he might remove our guilt, so that we might be not just forgiven, but reconciled and restored and brought near. He has cut the cords. Why live in bondage anymore? Seek him today. Call out to him. Tell him that you believe and ask him for his mercy. What's true of God's people through the ages and true of the Savior and King Jesus is also true of his followers, the church. Yeah, the plowers plow deep into the backs of the church throughout the ages. Great have been their afflictions. Many have been their afflictions, but they've not prevailed. They cannot prevail. They will not prevail. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Paul exclaimed, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, our enemy, the devil, is still a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Revelation 12 tells us that he is day and night before the Father in heaven accusing Christians. But the next verse in Revelation says that we conquer him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and by being willing to die when we don't love our lives more than death. Didn't Martin Luther teach us to sing so well? Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him from the man of God's own choosing. Yes, we still live in a fallen world, and hurt still hurts. There are people in other countries killed for the faith and leaving behind a widow and small kids. The hurt still hurt. We're afflicted in every way, Paul said, but not crushed 
perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're, we're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but, but not destroyed. Suffering and persecution still continues while we wait for Jesus to come back. We mourn it, we lament it, we pray about it, but we praise God that because he's righteous, there are limitations. There are limitations to it. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge to God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Not only died, but was raised to life. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So with God's people of millennia past, we can still today say and sing, He has cut the cords of the wicked, and they shall not prevail over us. How do we know? Now look to Jesus. There is the most severe persecution that's ever been put upon a man, and never more unjustly. But God vindicated him. In the resurrection, the cords were cut. They did not prevail. He will come again. And he will make all things right. In the meantime, we pray. That's what the psalm teaches us thirdly. Pray for the demise of all opposition to God. Pray for the demise of all opposition to God. Now here's where the psalm gets tricky. Let's read it. In the second half here, verse 5, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass in the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arm, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now we call this kind of thing imprecatory. This is imprecation. An imprecatory psalm is a psalm that prays a curse. Some psalms are devoted to the whole thing. They're all imprecatory. It's, it's imprecatory straight through. Our psalm has just a few verses in it. But whenever we come across it, I think most Christians do scratch their heads again, even if they heard a good answer to this curious thing of God's people calling down curses on their enemies. So let's take a few minutes to help us again understand what these psalms are here for and whether we're to use them today. You should know this, that the motive for wanting justice and vindication in the psalmist is not fundamentally a personal one. It's a fundamental concern about God. It's a concern for what is against God. This writer of Psalm 129 is not hated because he's an annoying person who can't get along with people. The opposition he's faced upon his back in this gruesome picture is because he identifies with God. He feels the hate of people around him because the People around him hate what he loves. So notice that word in verse 5, Zion. It doesn't say, may all who hate me be put to shame, but all who hate Zion. And when you think of Zion, don't think of Israel as a nation today, or even a mountain back then, or a capital city. When you think of Zion, think God's presence, God's people. God's promises and God's principles. Yes, I know I have a prodigious problem with using a lot of P's in a row. Pray for me. <laughs> God's presence, God's people, God's promises, God's principles. That's what Zion is all about. And there are people in this world who hate all that. So prayers like verse 5 are simply praying against what is against God. And those who are for the Lord can, in good conscience, pray against what is against the Lord. 
prayers like this are simply recognizing what is the case and what will be in the end. There is a heaven and hell. In the end, there will only be a heaven and hell. And God's anointed divides all humanity. What you do with God's anointed determines where you go. And that's not just an Old Testament thing. 2 Thessalonians 1. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I don't know if you noticed this, but our psalm actually puts it more mildly than that. If you've got a problem with this psalm, you've got a much bigger problem with 2 Thessalonians 1 or Revelation 6 when martyrs ask the Lord, how long until you vindicate our death? And he says, uh, not yet. Not all the martyrs are in yet. But it's coming. Psalm 129 is just praying that the opposition will be exposed for what it is, be put to shame. And that their agenda will be thwarted. Turn back. Spurgeon comments nicely on this psalm. He says, It is but justice that those who hate, harass, and hurt the good, that they should be brought to naught. Those who confound right and wrong ought to be confounded. And those who turn back from God ought to be turned back. Loyal subjects wish ill to those who plot against their king. Let their conspiracies be confounded. And their policies be turned back. How can we wish prosperity to those who would destroy that which is dearest to our hearts? Besides, the church of God is so useful, so beautiful, so innocent of harm, so fraught with good, that those who do her wrong are wronging all mankind and, to deserve, and deserve to be treated as the enemies of the human race. In short, Psalm 129 shows us how to pray that the enemy would not be blessed. It's a curious thing, isn't it? It sounds strange to us. Pray that they would not be blessed. Well, that's what the last few verses of the psalm say in this multi-layered imagery. Verse 6, let the grass on the housetops wither before it grows up. Ancient homes were made, of, uh, made with roofs of hardened dirt. And so grass seeds could fly up and land on that roof and, and then germinate. But they wouldn't last. That grass wouldn't last. It, there was no depth to the soil. It wasn't watered. And so you don't have to mow that kind of grass that's on your roof, even though there is some grass there from day to day. Verse 7 with which the reaper does not fill his hand nor the binder of sheaves his arms. There's no harvest coming from the rooftop grass because it's dead and gone in a day. Here's this picture of empty-handed harvesters. Though they plow the backs of their enemies, they get nothing from it, and they go home empty-handed. Verse 8, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. No one says a word of blessing to them, as was customary according to Ruth, chapter 2, where the same language is used. I believe it's Ruth and Boaz, where Boaz says, the blessing of the Lord be upon you, and Ruth says, we bless you in the name of the Lord. It's like uh, the farmer's greeting. There's no greeting here. There's no one around to offer the customary greeting, God bless your crops this year. What a contrast with Psalm 128, which we saw last week. The blessed man of Psalm 128, remember that? 
Psalm 128 showed us this beautiful domestic picture of liveliness and fruitfulness, togetherness and blessing of a man's labors putting food on his table for his family to enjoy and the fruit of that labor in that food producing generations of blessing. Versus our psalm with its picture at the end of futility and shame and loneliness and nothingness and destruction and death and no one around to even say good day to you, sir. No blessing. That's what's coming for those who are against the Lord and against his son, Jesus And those who are not for him are against him. And those who are against him are often in various forms against his followers. There's another possible outcome that's not mentioned in this particular psalm. What I mean is that this psalm ends on such a dark note. No blessing, just death and destruction. But it doesn't have to end that way. It doesn't have to end in demise. It can end in deliverance. Deliverance from yourself. From your sin. From the bonds of Satan that grip you. None here this morning are too far away or have done so much harm to God and his cause as to not have any hope of returning. The Apostle Paul is a great story. He was the chief persecutor of the church in the days of Acts 7. When Stephen was stoned, they came and brought the garments to this guy named Saul, who was in charge of stomping out Christianity. And the Lord showed him mercy, the chief of sinners, So that everyone would know, anyone can come. No one's too far away, so come. Some of these imprecatory psalms even have an alternate path explicitly in them. You might want to read Romans, I'm sorry, Psalms 7 later today. And you might see there, if a man doesn't repent, God will wet his sword and his bow is already bent and readied if a man does not repent. So he will give you what you want. What do you want? You want him, mercy, righteousness, reconciliation, peace? Or do you want hatred and mischief and violence and opposition and self-reliance and independence and self-will? I used to grow up singing a hymn, who is on the Lord's side, who will serve the king? Will you answer that today? Will you say what this this old hymn says? Jesus, you have bought us, not with gold or gem, but with your own lifeblood for a diadem. With your blessing, filling each who comes to thee, thou hast made us willing, thou hast made us free. By thy grand redemption, by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. Fierce may be the conflict, the hymn goes on. Strong may be the foe, but the king's own army none can overthrow. Round his standard ranging, victory is secure. For his truth unchanging makes the triumph sure. Joyfully enlisting by thy grace divine, we are on the Lord's side. Savior, we are thine. And those who are his can sing and say and pray psalms like 129, even the second half. In fact, you might want to say that we can, and we need to say it more now than ever. Christians need to pray like the end of Psalm 129 now more than ever. We should pray for the futility of those who oppose and hate the church. We should pray for the flourishing and the spreading of the gospel in this world. We should not just pray against ISIS, but even more, against the devil and his schemes. He's far great more a threat than 
than ISIS. But we can pray with such great confidence because they will not prevail. He has cut the cords of wickedness time and time again through countless enemies and opposition, even in the death and, and persecution and pain. There's conquering. There's victory. Praise him for who he is. He's the righteous conqueror. And he will bring to naught all who oppose him. And when we pray psalms like this, we also should probably have a feeling of responsibility, if not conviction. Here's what I mean. If we're going to pray against what is against God, then we should be grieved when we're against God. We should be moved to pray when the Lord that the Lord would intervene when we're going against him. And isn't it amazing that we can? We can pray about our own moments of opposition to the Lord. We can bring that to him. We can say, cut this, Lord, cut it. Cut it loose. We can come back to him through mercy and realign ourselves under the Lord's anointed. Let's pray for his help to do that. Oh, Father, that we can come to the Son, that we can kiss the Son and have him not be angry with us. That is good news. We pray, Lord, that some in this room would come to Jesus for the first time, that others would come again. Lord, that we would renew ourselves under your grace and fellowship, not being surprised by suffering, identifying with those who are suffering even more, praying for them. Praying for faithfulness and endurance, both for those who have their lives threatened this Sunday morning and for all of us. We pray for us here, Lord, who have this unusual temptation of ease and a lack of persecution that's unusual for your church throughout the ages. Keep us from the sins that are unique to the United States of America. Help us to cling to the gospel and hold it out to a world, Lord, so deeply in need of it. We thank you for Jesus. We come to him afresh today. Amen.